uh, and look at something that's been on my heart from Isaiah, from Psalm 63. Uh, it should be page 441 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> I'm going to read all 11 verses, but we're mainly going to look at verses 1 through 5 tonight. David writes, God, you are my God. I shall be watching for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and exhausted land where there is no water. So I have seen you in your sanctuary to see your power and glory. Because your favor is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with fat and fatness. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. <clears throat> and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand takes hold of me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go to the depths of the earth. They will be turned over to the power of the sword. They will be prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will boast for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. We are thankful, Lord, for the opportunity we have to study your word. We're thankful for your word. Uh, Lord, tonight, as we look at this passage of scripture, we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and that he would open our minds to understand what your word says. Father, we want your word to be living and active. We want the Holy Spirit to illuminate us, draw us into deeper depths of love for Jesus, a greater desire for you to stir within us a hunger and a longing for you greater than any we've ever known before. Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I would speak your words in your ways for your glory. Have your way in all of our hearts, we ask in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Several months ago, I was praying through Psalm 63. And I was struck by the first line, God, you are my God. I mean, just it was just something that really struck me. I mean, think about the significance of just that one part of a sentence. Right? There, there is a God. And, and since we're reading this from the Bible, it is the God of the Bible we're talking about. The God who speaks worlds into existence. The God who parts seas. The God who deserves to have His glory proclaimed to the nations. The God who is King over kings and Lord over lords. The God who will one day bring history to a close according to His own perfect will. The God who loves humanity so much, He sent His only begotten Son into the world to die in our place. The God who lovingly draws rebellious humanity to Himself. The God who saves all who will repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The God who adopts all those who repent and believe as His dearly loved children. The God who gives an inheritance to all those He adopts. The God who wants to redeem the nations through Jesus. All of this and so much more is the God that we're talking to that in this passage. 
But not only is there a God, the great God of the Bible, he goes on, you are my God. This God, the great God of the Bible, is our God. Again, think of the significance of this. This is not just a, a, a God who is out there somewhere. This is not the, the God over some far-flung nation. This is our God. The God of who does all of those things I mentioned and more is our God. A God we can know. A God we can love. A God we can experience on a personal and a real and a daily level. It's almost an overwhelming thought. And I think because of this, this is why David speaks the way he does in the rest of the psalm. But since the great God of the Bible was his God, David said he would be, I will be watching for you. Right in verse one. Now, the idea of watching for God carries with it the idea of eagerly looking for and seeking God. Some translations say early I will seek for you. Implying seeking God would be the first thing David did when he woke up, literally like at the crack of dawn. David would awake and he would begin his day by seeking God. And he would watch for God to come and be with him throughout the day. David is making seeking God the priority of his day. It's not a priority. It's not just a matter of if something happens and there's some downtime, I will seek God. But seeking God, being with God, this is the priority of his day. David was desperate for God. And so he would make seeking God the priority of his day every day. Since the great God of the Bible was his God, David thirsted for God. David yearned for God. Look again at verse 1. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. There is a sense of, of desperation in this statement. David's desire for God comes from the, the innermost part of his being. And the way David expresses it is thirsting and yearning for God in a dry and exhausted land, it, it pictures David feels experiencing God and meeting with God is essential to sustaining his very life. Seeking God and meeting with God and experiencing God is not an, an extra to David's life. This is, this is the key to his life. His life cannot go on without meeting with God. It pictures an insatiable desire. The kind that won't go away. The kind that can't be forgotten. And the kind that cannot be overcome by ignoring it. And it's a specific desire. It is for God. But David understands again in verse 1 that it is a dry and exhausted land where there is no water. There is nothing on this earth that will satisfy David's desire other than God. God and God alone can satisfy his desire. Anything else, everything else will fall short. And really, it will only serve to make David's thirst and yearning for God stronger. To try to satisfy his desire for God with anything other than God would be like being drinking sand on a hot day when you're dying of thirst. It would not satisfy and it would taste terrible and it would only make you long for the thing you really wanted even more. David understood the futility of seeking to satisfy his desire for God with the things of the world. 
Because this is a dry and exhausted land. There is nothing here that can satisfy the thirsty soul. There is no water for the thirsty soul outside of God. Since the great God of the Bible was his God, David would seek God where he would be found. Look at verse 2. So I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and glory. David had experienced God before as his all-sufficient and all-satisfying Lord. And so he would go back to the place where he had experienced God previously, and that was the sanctuary. David knew what it was to go to the sanctuary of God and experience the presence of God. David knew what it was to go to the sanctuary of God and be aware of the power and the glory of God. And he longed for those days again. Now, this is kind of neat in that David's desire is not for the sanctuary itself. Right? David's desire is for God. David remembers these times in the sanctuary because in the sanctuary is where he had experienced the presence, power, and glory of God he wanted to experience again. David's longing wasn't for a place. David's longing was for a person. Since the great God of the Bible was his God, David would be satisfied in God. Look at verse 3. Because your favor is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with fat and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Now to really get the statement in these verses, God's favor is better than life. So he would bless him. He would lift up his hands to him and he would be satisfied with him. We have to really understand the context of when this psalm was written. Now, it says in the inscription, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, in what we have of David's life and God's word, there are two particular times when David was on the run in the wilderness. One is when he ran from King Saul and the other was when he was on the run from the during the rebellion of his son, Absalom. Since David refers to himself as king in verse 11, it is more than likely that it is written during Absalom's rebellion. So knowing this, David wrote this during Absalom's rebellion, it gives us an idea to understand what's going on. David has recently gone from living the life of a king, ease and, and luxury in the palace, to now being on the run with people actively seeking to kill him. The people seeking to kill him are, are trying to kill him because his own son has rebelled against him. And this rebellion was not some sort of spur of the moment rebellion. Absalom had been planning this rebellion for quite a long time. And when the rebellion fully goes underway and Absalom tries to take over some of David's friends and advisors even side with Absalom. This is the situation David finds himself in as he writes this psalm. This helps us to understand the passion and the emotion of the psalm. But to me, it also helps us, prevents us from undervaluing the statements David makes in this psalm. When David says God's favor is better than life, this isn't pontificating from an ivory tower. 
He is not living a life of ease and, and calling to the people down in the trenches, telling them just be happy, just be calm. It's all good. Be satisfied with what you have. Uh, when I was in the army, we had a, a chaplain. He was actually a free will Baptist chaplain. And and we were out one day doing some training and we had been laying in the mud. It had been raining and cold. and It was just it was just utterly miserable. And but we got to get together for a chapel service and our chaplain comes together. Come, we gather together with him. We're wet, we're muddy, we've barely eaten, barely drunk. He steps out of his nice heated Humvee in his starched uniform because he hasn't been sleeping in the mud. He hasn't been digging holes. He hasn't been laying in water puddles. He is clean, he is warm, he is dry, and he begins his sermon by telling us, I hope y'all haven't been complaining. This is a day the Lord has made. We should rejoice and be glad in it. Well, it's easy to say that when you've lived the last several hours in a nice warm Humvee. It's different when you're laying in the mud. David is not this army chaplain getting out of his nice warm Humvee telling everyone in the mud and the wet, hey, be happy with God. David is the one in the muck and the mire. David is the one who is on the run. David is the one who is coated in the mud and the sweat and the blood of his running. And in the midst of this, what David says is, God is better than everything. David makes this statement as someone who has recently lost everything. He's left his palace. He's left his home. He's left his family. He has literally just gone on the run with the stuff he has on his back. He does not know if God is going to spare him and bring him back to the palace or not. For all David knows, this could be the end of his life. This rebellion could not only cost him all of his stuff, but it could cost him his very life. And yet what David says is God is better than all of it. What a powerful statement. David not only says God is better, David demonstrates God is better. David demonstrates God is better by his praising of God. He will praise the Lord. He will bless the Lord so long as he lives. He will lift up his hand to the Lord. So long as I live, I will bless you and I will lift up my hands to your name. If this rebellion took David's life, the last thing the rebels would hear would be David saying, God is good. The last thing they would hear is praise for God coming from David's lips as they struck him down. God is better than everything, so his soul will be satisfied with fat and fatness. Fat and fatness pictures the rich and wonderful foods that a wealthy king could afford. What he's saying is God is enough. Really, God is more than enough. God is better than everything. If Absalom's rebellion is the end of his reign and the end of his life, that will be okay because he still has God. God is better than any of the comfort the world offers. God is better than any of the pleasures this world offers. God is better than anything that is not God. So much so that if God is all David has, then David is just as satisfied as he is 
when he has God plus all of the other stuff. That's what he's saying. That's what verse 5 means. My soul is satisfied with just God in the same way that it is if I have the very best of all this world, all the best it can provide for me. Our desire for God should mimic David's desire for God. Our longing for God should mimic David's longing for God. Our satisfaction in God should mimic David's satisfaction in God. We should be so so awed by the fact the great God of the Bible is our God that seeking Him becomes the priority of our days every day. I don't know if this necessarily means waking with the dawn as it does for David here. But I do know that it means it should be the priority in our life. If we take the attitude of, I'll get around to seeking God at some point today, then most likely we'll never get around to it. Life comes at us fast and we're a busy people. Time to seek God does not just appear in our schedules and in our lives. Rather, we must make it the priority of each day. Pick a time and then build our lives, our days around that. Now, for my, for me, it does have to be first thing of the day for several reasons. Typically, I have specific tasks I plan to accomplish each day of the week. And once my day gets started, there's not a whole lot of room in my schedule for other things. And as my wife will tell you, I'm not real good at altering my plan. Also, I like to start the day seeking God. I like it in part because I'm easily distracted. And in the early morning hours, before anyone else is awake, there's just not much to distract me. It's just me and God. No one else is up making noise with me to wonder what they're doing. No one is turning on the TV to hear what's being going on there. No one is trying to talk to me. It's just me, my cup of coffee, and Jesus. And it's a a sweet time in my day. That's how I make seeking God my priority of my day. But that doesn't mean it has to be the way you make it the priority. But however you do it, You must make seeking God the priority of your day. And and I've used the word day intentionally instead of the priority of our life. Because often when we say it's the priority of my life, then what we do is we don't focus on just daily faithfulness to this. We try to take a big picture. Well, it is the focus of my life, but today there wasn't time. And tomorrow there may not be time. But overall, it still falls into the priority. And I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. I think it is meant to be the priority of my day today. And then tomorrow it becomes the priority of my day tomorrow. And then the day after that it becomes the priority of my day then. Not the priority of my life in a nebulous, non-measurable way. The priority of my day every day. We should also seek God where He will be found. Right? God is reliably found when we seek Him in prayer. When we call upon Him, He answers us. He meets with us. 
God is reliably found when we seek Him through His Word. I mean, we call the Bible the Word of God, and that's not just a title, that's literally what we're reading. The words of God for us in our lives. The words that are living and active, that His Spirit quickens in our spirit to speak to us, to challenge us, to change us. We should... God is reliably found when we fast, when we say to God, I, I desire you more than my daily food or, or whatever I fast from. Then God is reliably found for us in that time. God is reliably found when we seek him in worship. Take the time to declare his worth, whether we sing songs, whether we just take time to praise his name. But when we worship God, we find God. God is reliably found when we seek Him in church. And the whole point of what we do when we gather together is to give us an opportunity together to seek the Lord. We seek the Lord in song. We seek the Lord through His Word. We seek the Lord in prayer. I mean, we, we do almost all of those but fast every time we gather together. How could we not meet with God in that time when His people gather together in His name for His sake and are seeking Him diligently? Now these may not be the only ways we can seek God. They are places where we can consistently meet with God if we seek Him in these places. How we David wanted to go to the sanctuary because he had met with God there. He knew God could be found there. It, it is important that we seek God in the places where God can be found. And I want to say this carefully because I don't mean I'm not trying to be legalistic or condemning. But let's be realistic. God is not likely to be found on television. God is not likely to be found as we piddle on social media. God is not likely to be found in these ways. If we want to meet with God and seek God, we must seek Him in the ways where we know we can find Him. We can always find Him in His Word. We can always find Him in prayer. We will always find Him when we fast. We will always find Him when we worship. We will always find Him in church. Something else that's important to remember is prayer, Bible study, fasting, worship, and church are means to an end, not the end themselves. Right? Just as David did not seek the sanctuary for the sake of being in the sanctuary, we don't pray, study God's Word, fast, worship, or come to church for the sake of praying, studying God's Word, fasting, worshiping, or coming to church. We pray to seek God and to experience God. I mean, really, we, 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 that's the main thrust, the main desire in our praying. We do ask God for things. That's a part of it. But we should want the giver more than we want his gifts. What we aren't just seeking God, do this for me. We are seeking God, I want you with me. We study God's Word to seek God and to experience God. We don't study God's Word so that we can 
check our box and say we've done it. We don't study God's word so that we can then go out and argue with people and show them they're wrong and we're right. We study God's word so that we can seek God and we can experience God through his word as he he meets with us through his word and works in our life and and we come to know him better and love him more. We fast to seek God, to experience God. We don't fast to demonstrate our willpower that food has no control over me. We don't fast to show how holy we are that we can go without food for the sake for religious purposes. Our fasting is for the sole purpose, seeking the Lord in a deeper way and experiencing God in a deeper way. We worship God to seek God, to experience God. Sure, we, we like certain, maybe I, I typically like to worship through song. I'll come in here, I'll get a hymnal and I'll sing a song. There are certain songs I like, I enjoy singing them, they make me happy. But the making me happy isn't the point. It's the connection with God that we get in the process. Experiencing God and seeking God. We come to church, again, not to check our box, not to show that we're holy. We come to meet with God, to seek God, to experience God. Seeking God and experiencing God is our overall goal. This is our desire. This is the reason why we do what we do. This is why we pray. This is why we study God's word. This is why we fast. This is why we worship. This is why we come to church. Since the great God of the Bible is our God, we make seeking him the priority of our days and we seek him in the places where we know we can find him. Now, if you're out on a Wednesday night during the first week of school, you probably already feel a sense of desire to meet with God like I've been talking about. If you're out on a Wednesday night in the first week of school, you've already determined to seek God in your life. So my encouragement is don't give up no matter what happens. Seek God because God is enough. God is more than enough. God is better. God is better than sleeping in. God is better than the richest and best foods. God is better than whatever temptation we may face. God is better and seeking Him is worth it when we come to know God better. One last encouragement that I want to give before we close and spend time praying, seeking God. Be sure to always seek God yourself. And don't rely on others to seek God on your behalf. Now, Let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't ask other people to pray for you. I'm talking about seeking God in order to be with God. Seeking God in order to experience God. Don't let others seek God and tell you about their experience with God. And that be your seeking of God. Don't settle for a second hand experience with God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn to Exodus 19, page 58. Some of this we'll read because we'll look quite a bit. Some we'll read, some we'll just kind of skim. But in in Exodus 19, verse 1, the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. 
When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. There Israel camped in front of the mountain. Okay, so you see what's going on. There's a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. They stop here where God leads them. Moses, he goes up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and says, This is what you shall say the house of Jacob to the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth, among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So this is the message. Here's what happens. They stop. God calls Moses up. Moses goes up to be with God, right? That's what it says. Moses went up to God in verse 3. He goes up there. God gives him a message for the people about God's desire for the people and God's plans for the future of the people. Right. So verses seven on Moses goes back down. Now look at verse nine it says the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so the people may hear when I speak to you and may trust in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people, words of the words of the people to the Lord who had said they would do it. Then the Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their garments and have them ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. All right. So here's what's going to happen. Moses has gone up to where God was. He got a message. He came down, delivered it to the people. The people said, we'll do whatever God wants us to do. Moses goes back up the mountain where God is. He tells God what, what the people said. God says, okay, then go back down and tell the people that here in just a few days, I'm going to settle on the mountain. They're going to see my glory. And I'm going to speak to them what I expect from them and what I want from them. And they're going to hear me for themselves. They're, they're, not, they're going to see my glory on the mountain. And they're going to hear my voice speak from the top of it. They're not going to rely on you in this moment. They're going to hear me and see me in my glory. So the people, and there's all these and things that they have to do in order to get ready. Moses goes down, gets the people ready. We see in verse 17, Moses brought the people out of camp on the appropriate day. And notice the point. My Bible says to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. So this is it. They're finally going to get to see the glory of God and hear the voice of God. So verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the entire mountain quaked violently. Can you picture the scene? The glory of God has descended and the entire mountain is shaking because of it. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. So a thunderous voice of God. The Lord came down on the mountain to Sinai. Lord called to Moses, and it goes on where they, Moses kind of goes back up and down again. And then you look at verse 25. So Moses went down to the people, and he tells them the words of God. Be prepared. Verse Chapter 20, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So Moses comes down, gathers with the people, and they hear God themselves. This is the first time, if I'm, unless I'm missing it. It's the first time they've heard God themselves. Moses has seen the glory of God. Moses has heard the voice of God. But what's happened is Moses has gone to God, experienced God, heard from God, comes back to the people, said, God's awesome. Here's what he said we ought to do. Now the people are getting their own taste of this. The glory of God is on the mountain. The voice of God is speaking. They are all hearing 
what God has to say. They, they literally in this moment saw the glory of God and heard the voice of God. How, how do a people respond to seeing the glory of God and hearing the voice of God? Look at verse 18 of chapter 20. And the people were watching and hearing the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it all, they trembled and stood at a distance. Now, personally, I think that's a valid response. It'd be a terrifying sight. But notice what they say next. You speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. So they have seen the glory of God. They've heard the voice of God. And their response is, we didn't like that. That was scary. From now on, you go talk to God and you come tell us what He said and we'll do whatever you say. Now look at verse 21. The people, Moses agrees with that and decides to do it. Look at verse 21. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Right? So... These people have seen the glory of God. Now they've heard the voice of God. And their response is, we don't want that. From now on, Moses, you go to God. You experience God. You hear from God. And you come down and tell us about God. And so it ends with Moses going to where God was. And the people standing at a distance. We don't want to be like these people. We don't want a second-hand experience of God. We can and we should seek God and experience God for ourselves. As disciples of Jesus, we do not need anyone to be Moses for us. Our better Moses has come in the person of Jesus. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus has ascended. And Jesus is interceding for us at this moment. Jesus is our Moses who has gone up to God and has heard from God. But rather than leaving us standing at a distance, He has made a hole in the veil, making it possible for us to go into the very presence of God where we can go boldly and without fear. Jesus has enabled all of us to experience God, to seek God, to know God ourselves. We do not have to rely on someone else's experience of God. We do not have to rely on someone seeking God and telling us about it and having a second-hand experience of the greatness and the glory and the goodness of God. We are meant to have that ourselves. Go to God yourself. Seek God yourself. Seek God in prayer. Seek God in His Word. Seek God in fasting. Seek God in worship. Seek God in church. Seek God. Experience God. And find in God what your soul craves and what your soul needs. I'll pray and then we'll take prayer requests. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and worthy. Father, we are well aware that this is a dry and exhausted land where there is no water. All of us, Father, have tried to satisfy our thirsty souls with any number of things. Sinful things. Non-sinful things. 
religious activities. You name it, and we have tried to satisfy the thirst in our soul rather than just coming to you. And we know those things did not satisfy. They did not fulfill the longing of our souls, Lord. Father, guide us. And let the longing of David in Psalm 63 become our longing. Guide us, Father, that we we would be like Moses. If others want to stand at the distance, then that's fine. Let them, but not me, not us. We're going into the thick darkness where God is. We are going to seek you. We are going to experience you. We are going to seek you where you are found. We're going to trust in the promises that your word gives us that if we seek for you, if we seek for you with all of our hearts, you'll be found. We'll know you. We'll experience you. We'll love you more than we ever have before. Father, let us take the words of Hebrews seriously. Jesus has torn down the veil separating. And we're able now to go right into the most holy place. To be with you. To experience you in ways that are legitimately tangible. Lord. Let our souls find rest in you. Let our souls find satisfaction in you. Let us be able to genuinely say, "Mm, your favor is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will lift up my hands to your name. And so long as I have God, I will be satisfied. As if I have the richest foods and the greatest pleasures this world offers. Because you, O Lord, are what our souls long for. Have your way in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.